everyone. You're listening to See Here Brother. My name is Richard Wilson. And my name is Josh Wilson. And we're just a couple of brothers who love film and literature, and we just want to share that with each other and with you, the listener. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in. All right. Hey, so, yeah, episode four here. It's been episode uh, four. Been a, a minute. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, wait. That's the wrong one. <laughs> no, no. It's this... been a minute in coming. One of these days. Yeah. One of these days we're gonna have to. I th- we're at this point we're almost far enough behind that we're ahead. Yeah, absolutely. We've we've lapped ourselves. <laughs> exactly. So uh, this is actually episode five. <laughs> yeah. And no, don't miss, confuse them. If you missed episode four, go go search for it. Good luck. No, this is our April Fools' episode. Uh, so we picked a couple of of things for each other that uh, have. Uh, Themes of switcheroos and uh, um, mixed and changing identities, and um, so we'll, we're going to dig into that. I just want to give a little disclaimer at the beginning because just a uh, well, actually two things. So a little like behind the scenes thing. So just so everyone knows, you know, this is our um, we are a, a um, unofficial uh, Futurama um, fan podcast. On the, even though we are ne- we may never actually talk about Futurama directly. So yeah, one they of have, the well, I've yet to receive a check for them. Yeah. <laughs> for I all know. of the mini references that I we've know, done so far. I know. We've really plugged them enough, you would think. But um just so everyone knows, every time our intro music is some something different that comes from a a public domain cartoon. Um and that's uh, that's how I get the music. So it um uh it's kind of a little um tip of the hat to Futurama because anyone that seen Futurama knows that they always um, have a little tiny cartoon clip from some old um, cartoon at the beginning right before the Planet Express crashes so that's that's what I was doing and the other thing was sound related I just want to say is speak since we're dealing with April Fools I guess this is okay but we've been trying to improve our sound quality Rich finally got a microphone um, and I have a microphone that I'm borrowing. I fa- well, I found one on the side of the road, so hopefully yeah. it works. And I stole one from my kids. So, but there's like somebody like two houses down that keeps playing like La Vida Loca and then some other music really loud. So if that comes out on the soundtrack for this podcast this time, um, that may just be a, a unintended. Look, just no, no, no. Just turn it up. Unintended bonus. Just turn it up and make that the intro music, and just oh, that's you know, a good allow idea. The, see exactly. Or don't or, yeah. Don't allow anything to any opportunity to go to waste. You know, I'm afraid then we're gonna get like copyright strikes or something because you hear like the the bass thumping from La Vida Loca jumping in and on here. But anyway, that's all right. As well, long as we don't, don't sing you... Happy Birthday to each other, we should be okay. Yeah, we, if we do, we'll. I promise we'll sing the Futurama version of Happy Birthday. So what day is yeah. today? All right. Yeah. So uh, all right. So Rich, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about the book that you picked for me to read this month? Yeah. Uh, in all seriousness, of course, uh, we, as Josh mentioned uh, many moons ago, we we kind of went with the theme of April Fools. Uh, that's kind of applicable. Maybe a little bit more in the second half when we talk about uh, the film Josh picked. Uh, and for once, we'll we'll actually be talking about something that's kind of funny. So you, there is that to look forward to. So stick around for the uh, the second half. Broadcast news was funny. But. No, that's true. Broadcast news was, fun. but we didn't really talk very much about the comedic elements of of broadcast news. 
um, yeah. largely. So uh, the the other thing, uh, other second disclaimer, Josh and I each have a list of disclaimers uh, that we have oh, to great. get through here. <laughs> no, no, the other <laughs> Nothing thing Nothing more fun than this fine <laughs> right, print exactly. up front at the everyone, beginning of if, a podcast. If everyone would have just accepted the terms and the conditions when we started, yeah. we wouldn't be doing this. But no, the other thing I was going to say is that uh, there's probably a little bit less thematic connection than in a lot of our other episodes, which is fine. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, maybe you maybe you have found some ways to kind of extrapolate between this and uh, our, our film. But uh, so I chose a book that has been basically at the top of not at the top, but on almost every best of 2020 list this year. And it's called The Vanishing Half by, by Britt Bennett. And I believe it's her second novel. Uh, and it came out probably about midway through last year. And I'll try and give a brief summary, briefer than uh, some of our summaries have been in the past. But effectively, the story revolves around a pair, uh, a set of twins. And they're from a town. Uh, they are uh, girls of color. They are two black girls. Uh, but they're from a town that has uh, kind of cultivated um, light ness in their skin tone uh they have for whatever reason this town has tried to foster an environment where uh yes they are all black but they are also you know light on the lighter uh end of the spectrum there uh and it kind of starts off by saying you know one of the girls returned uh but the long and short of the plot is the two girls uh, start working when they're about 16, they start working, uh, in the same line of work that their mother has worked cleaning houses for the really rich white people in a nearby town. And they decide to kind of skip town on that, just run away. And they move to new Orleans and they spend a little bit of time in new Orleans and they kind of struggle in, in a couple of ways economically. And then one of the girls, Stella, effectively just disappears and you kind of don't really hear very much about what that what that was what that process was until the second half the first half of the book in my mind largely revolves around Desiree Desiree is the other there is you know they're twins I believe identical twins and Desiree mm-hmm. returns to Mallard which is their hometown Many, many years later, she's been in a relationship. She brings home a daughter with her. Notably, the daughter is very, very dark skinned. Uh, That is a, you know, an important detail uh, as that daughter herself becomes, you know, an important kind of character and and almost narrator later in the story. Uh, But Desiree returns to the hometown and basically never leaves again. Uh, She stays ends up working at a diner stays takes care of the mom and basically just comes back and has the kind of the life that she didn't want she originally was the one that was kind of i want to get out of here and then stella as it turns out the way the reason she disappeared was because she was working for a white man as a secretary as a secretary and that man i think just kind of made the assumption that she was white or Stella, you know, she just, chose to pass as she chose, she chose to pass as white ultimately and ends up living basically the rest of her life as a white woman. And there's a, a brief reunion towards the end, 
between the two of them. But most of the book, uh, and then there are, they also both have daughters. Uh, and so there is a, a segment, you know, maybe about two thirds of the way through, not just a small segment, but a relatively large segment dealing with Jude, uh, who is the, the uh, Desiree's daughter, the, the dark skinned girl who's very successful and she ends up going to like medical school and stuff. Uh, and then I, you know, honestly, I don't remember. I think uh, Kennedy, Kennedy. Kennedy. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yes. Like the president. Yes, exactly. Uh, and Kennedy is Stella's daughter and they end up in a kind of weird, you know, connection and relationship just through some sort of coincidences. But ultimately the story mostly hinges upon issues of, First of all, issues of division. So clearly the division of the twins, uh, you know, there's a, as I say, there's a reunion toward the end uh, that is sort of a, you know, there's some peace there. I wouldn't say they just immediately hug and make up and everything's fine. And uh, it also, of course, hinges upon themes of race. What does it mean to be black in a sense? Uh, what is the line for uh, a black person in which it's appropriate to, uh, I don't know, value or be envious of, of white culture? Or should they be in opposition to white culture? What does it mean to uh, properly address the power that white culture had over the black individual, particularly over the black woman? And then there are some other some other smaller themes that, that uh, resonate throughout that as well. So um, that's not a specific resolution, but ultimately the sisters do reunite the, you know, they're taking care of, or at least Desiree stays to take care of the mother who gets progressively, uh, less and less, uh, aware she has dementia of some variety. Uh, and that's basically, I mean, it kind of ends a little bit ambiguously, not, not like a cliffhanger, but that was my impression anyway, that it just kind of fades out a little bit, um, and Stella goes back to her life and makes that well, the, decision that, that that's all that that's the only thing that she can do because she has so much invested in that, particularly for her daughter's sake. And well, the conclu the conclusion of it is that the the narrative arc closes with the grandmother's death eventually. And then right. how the grandmother kind of, being kind of Desiree and Stella's mother. Right. The twins mom. Right. Um, who, who's, you know, lived in, exemplified the, the town of Mallard and its fortunes, which I assume is a, I assume is a fictional town, but it I is. didn't really, it, yeah, it kind of seems like town. it has to be, I mean, it, in the book, even she describes how it wasn't on any map and it was, you could never find it. It was just too kind of off of the, the beaten path. They had intentionally kind of created this hidden, society in this town where they were as you said cultivating a light-skinned um uh blackness uh in their in their social order um they were kind of like it was almost like a voluntary you know breeding program where they they only kind of intermarried amongst themselves and and that was a, a point of of uh an intentional and acknowledged point of their social order there right it's but, it's early but it's not it, it even didn't the, like surprising it's it's established yeah. pretty early in the novel that that's but yeah but it, but that one of the important things to note in the plot is that and as far as the 
the theme kind of uh, kicking off a lot of the events in a way is that the the twins father which we haven't mentioned was um you know murdered by white men who you know he was dragged out of his house and lynched basically he was beaten to death and um you know that they didn't finish the job so they actually came back and killed him in the hospital so it was very you know this very dramatic story um of you know that despite uh, so that kind of sets up one of the themes is that you know what allows you to be white it is a whiteness being a social construct or a choice or a what you know a um a matter of how people choose to perceive each other intersubjectively but even that does not always save you know a whole town trying to make itself literally lighter skin doesn't allow them to escape the um the social stigma of racism um and its violent consequences in some cases so but so this book i i i don't i have to say i probably didn't love it as much as the the um the the raves that you were describing it, it wasn't quite as compelling to me as as um, you describe, but it is pretty easy to read um, relatively quickly, and that's not that that in itself is not a knock on the book. It's 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 well written. It's um, it moves quickly, but um, I did find it more. I did find the conclusion of it a little more moving than some parts in the middle. Um, I, I I think having the multiple points of view, starting with the, the the twins and then moving to the the daughter's generation and then kind of back and forth, um, it kind of left me every time I was somewhat invested in one of those threads, it would kind of move off, and it does do a, a quite a bit of jumping around in terms of the narrative. Uh, even within a certain chapter, it will do a lot of flashbacks and and that sort of thing, um, which makes it fairly I don't know it's it's kind of disjunct but it but it's not that hard to follow so um as far as the narrative critique of it that's I was uh kind of neutral on that the, the themes of of um identity um and and are is one able to choose whatever you want does that change over time because obviously we're dealing with the uh, the daughters came to they came to you know to maturity in the uh in the 60s right well and yeah then, i mean it's yeah. 1968 when she returns yeah. oh when she returns so like in the right. early 60s or or in the uh or the late 50s early 60s they kind of come to to maturity it was 14 yeah. years after they left that cool. she returns. okay yeah yeah and yeah so, so it's right. 68 when Desiree right. returns to Mallard That's right. or whatever. And it's and it's very clear in the the sections it does tell you exactly what date. And so then the daughters come to to their maturity in the you know late 70s and and early 80s. So the reason I was bringing that up is because what these choices that each generation is able to make has ch- changes over the time from think about the civil rights era struggle to the you know reagan era i mean it's very different in terms of like what the what 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 um, progress or what what had had changed in society but what hadn't changed in society as well you know because 
since uh, Stella, as you s- said, chose to be white, she had all of the privileges that that came with because she marries her boss. She gets to be very rich. But then we see that even being famous or something, because she ends up having a um, a black family move into her rich neighborhood in uh, California, and the black family is it's it's like a famous actor on a TV show, and his you know his status as a famous or well well liked TV character does not translate to him having privilege to to live in that and to ultimately be in that, yeah. they're, they're run out of the the community well they're um, largely run out of the community by stella so it's an entire circumstance that is set up because stella is running for like a small some small office or she's well, at she, an hoa meeting or something like that and she ends, ends up, up she ends up kind of planting the seeds of saying that the, the husband made her feel uncomfortable and that was enough for people to right. push over into violence to right throw bricks in their house and everything until I'm, they left. I mean, I thought I, I thought that was a really compelling little kind of micro story that almost could have stood alone as a right as a short story, especially in the sense that, you know, there's nothing wrong with Stella loving her daughter. Uh, and even to some degree, there's nothing wrong with her loving a white man. It's just the extent to which she had to go in order to um, protect those relationships was, as you say, a, uh, a factor. It was a, a, an, artifact, well, the, the, an artifact of the time in which she had to make a... It, she shouldn't have been forced to have to make a choice between right. being kind to a neighbor and... You know, protecting she, her own identity and her own felt, children. Yeah, what she felt she had to do to protect them. Um, Culturally, I think the, the, kind of had to do. I right, sh- but the sure. point the point was that ultimately, when the point was that ultimately, there's a question of a question of identity as truth. So, like, if she's lying that she's white, quote unquote, she she had to maintain that that lie all of her life in order to prevent from something like potentially something like what happened to her black neighbors across the street from happening to her. But the question I think is that the book ultimately makes you try to confront is, was it her dishonesty throughout her life? Was she being a liar or was the very concept of what, we were talking about a lie in the first place. Like, in other words, there was no, for her to quote, pass as white, the social implication is that she's lying to do that in order to do that. But the point, I think the deeper point is that there's no such thing as that in the first place, that those rate, those racial divisions are arbitrary and constructed anyway. Right. So it's really society that's telling the lie on these people Right. In the first well, place, making them into something that's different from anybody that is that has the favored status of being white. Right. Uh, but this has been written about very extensively in a lot of different ways. And in particular, uh, I think it's mentioned in 13th, the documentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's pretty well documented that 
there is sort of an arbitrariness to the classification of what makes a person black. Like what percentage of black a person has to be in order to be black. And so I think that, you know, Bennett is showcasing that a lot in the life of Kennedy, the daughter. Mm -hmm. Because the implication is, and, and one of the reasons why Stella... So Stella at the end, you know, even despite the fact that the mother passes away, the implication is that she never returns again. That she's come back that one time, and basically oh, she yeah. comes back to say, hey, tell your daughter or whatever to stop hassling me because it's going to jeopardize the future of my daughter. Because the implication is if people know that I'm black, then they're going to know that Kennedy's black. Even though, by all indication, Kennedy is as you know, quote unquote, Caucasian as you could be, at least culturally. And yeah. no, there's no question in her appearance, basically. So, right. yeah, the, the the arbitrariness of the of racial uh, designations is, of course, at play there. And, so, and Bennett is, speaking- is, is more sympathetic on the concept of, of passing. Sorry, Bennett is more sympathetic on Sorry. the concept of passing than uh, a lot of people are. And I think that's one of the things that helps this book instead mm-hmm. of, you know, the, there were some... There definitely have been some some marked condemnations of the idea of passing. Uh, even mm-hmm. you know, if you harken back to our last podcast, the idea of there was a a marginal amount of passing going on in the life of Malcolm X, at least in terms of you know what it represented for him to be, you know, like bleaching his hair or whatever, yeah. or smoothing, conk, straightening his hair, conking their hair. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They called it, and you know, yeah. it was his his you know mentor in the prison that ultimately became you know, his leader in, in the nation of Islam that said, you know, don't embrace white culture at all. Um, and there's a book that you and I both read also, just in case I always like throwing these kinds of things out, especially if one or two viewers are interested in other uh, works that are uh, revolve around these themes and want to explore this more. But the time of our singing addresses this oh, yeah. in a lot of ways as well. Uh, yeah, maybe maybe uh, by Richard it, Powers. By Richard Powers, who is a finally started to be recognized, at least in commercial circles, as being worthy of uh, his books being purchased. I think critically, he's he's always been recognized in a lot of ways. It's not a perfect book; it has its own uh, challenges, but it's it's a really uh, interesting book on on kind of the concept of uh, the embrace of quote unquote, you know white culture by by black people whatever those designations are i'm only throwing those air quotes out there because as we say yeah. a lot of that stuff is kind of so kind I, of I wanted... continues the problem if we continue to refer to stuff as you know being specifically white i wanted to to kind of talk about some of the ways that the author brit bennett in in the vanishing half ties in a lot of different ways of people choosing their identities. Um, and I think there's one part that's less successfully integrated into the themes because it's its own complicated issue. And I, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but the, that part is that Jude ends up having a romantic partner who's a transsexual, as they call it in the book, a uh, man who um, is becoming you know is trying to transition into by medical means into being a man um and that part i think is less successfully integrated because 
there are issues there are lots of complex issues involved in that and that that character is kind of always on the periphery as far as a point of view character so i'm not sure that i have a whole lot that i can say about that that's very productive as far as the way that that theme is explored but as far no, as especially Kit, in the sense that especially in the sense that jude just responds to that with basically a flat okay like there's yeah. almost no if i remember correctly i don't remember there being a a large exploration of the challenge that that would be you know whatever your yeah. position on on that sort of procedure or that sort of you know d- decision or challenge that an individual would face it there's not really sufficient enough time to handle that yeah. well in this book i i, I, think. I agree but uh, but another thing that is is I think a little more interestingly integrated, and in, and it's it's also kind of on a surface level, but it's the idea that Kennedy is a Kennedy the the white daughter, or the white the Stella's daughter. She's a you know fair blonde, rich girl, and she decides to be to you know drop out of college, and she has the privilege of doing that because her parents are wealthy so they can support her and she becomes a an actress so there is kind of this idea of like well actors and actresses they they choose their their roles they become other people uh, while they're on stage and she's a at first as a stage actor and then she becomes a like a soap soap opera actor for a while and then what the interesting implication is that you know you are somewhat who people perceive you is you know maybe not who you really are because at one point after she's done this long run on a uh, soap opera you know she becomes a person that people will recognize on the street and so strangers will come up to her and make assumptions about her because she played this soap opera character on TV for X number of years, and they call her by the name of the character. And so kind of that's a little bit of a sort of another way that we're, that the author is, is showing us that people make assumptions about who you are based on what they see externally or, or by behaviors that you've shown them. Um, and, you know, of course, in a somebody who's an actor they're doing that as part of their job to tell stories and it's all everyone knows it's fake but then when it's somebody like Stella um, Kennedy's mother she's acting her whole life um, in order to pretend that she's not got the background that she does have and because she does that and because she has a certain type of appearance everyone assumes certain things about her whereas her identical twin who presumably looks exactly like her, um, although she's a different person, never adopts that persona of being white. It never occurred to her to do so. Uh, And in fact, she marries a dark-skinned man and has a very dark-skinned daughter. And she embraces that side of her um, heritage. For her, um, people will make a completely different set of assumptions about her. Yeah. Well, I mean... yeah. She also what I mean, it's introduced really early in the book that Stella was kind of Stella who ends up, you know, becoming the who ends up, you know, passing mm-hmm. was essentially the, you know, the quieter, the more bookish of the two. 
And her desire right. was to be, you know, a school teacher. And basically her desire was to not leave Mallard, whereas Desiree was the more adventurous of the two and yeah. literally did talk about becoming an actress or right. something like that. So there's also this yeah, there's a kind lot of, of role reversal and that happens there. there that Desiree mm-hmm. ends up living what's effectively a very natural life, so to speak, of right. just hanging out in her hometown and... Uh, Stella becomes someone who is who is acting the whole time. Uh, yeah. Yes, the idea of the the concept of what is acting versus lying. Uh, you know, it, it explores that in some more minor ways as well. Even in terms mm-hmm. of the way people communicate with each other. There's another character uh, that we haven't really talked about that ends up becoming basically a lot lifetime partner. Uh, romantic partner of Desiree's by right. the name of by the name of Early, who mm-hmm. originally, I don't know that there, there that's are that's another some... character I wish that they you know had given more space to. He this yeah. is one of the things where the reasons I didn't ultimately love the book is because a lot of the characters that seem to have some interesting thing to them, they would just kind of end up becoming you know background players but he he's another one if you think about his job he's a bounty hunter and uh he runs down people skipping on their bail or whatever and um in doing so he inevitably will go from town to town and not be one particular person you know he has to kind of insinuate himself with folks so that he can get the information he needs in order to track people down they don't go into a lot of detail about that but you presume that that may involve a degree of either lying or just kind of like subterfuge yeah in order to get what info you need because that's you you know you do what you got to to get your man or whatever that you're running down so yeah so it's you know they do have you're right they have a lot of different um different ways that it's it ties in and and so it's kind of like kind of like the cover of the book you know the the illustration of the book which is this kind of i don't know i kind of think of it as sort of like a harlequin looking thing in terms of these bright colors and this overlapping faces of of these two female um shapes uh they should have gotten matt kent to draw the cover he's (laughs) the overlapping faces or something that would have been awesome yeah that's one of our favorite comic book artists, but we should talk but, about Matt Kent at some point. Yeah, we will. But but as far as the but what I'm saying about the book though is it's got this kind of there's a kaleidoscopic kind of nature sort of image to the the front of the cover, and I think that's kind of reflecting the sort of pieces of stories that you get kind of mixed together in this book, which I don't know. I just didn't um 100% like that aspect of it but um but I did uh think that the themes were interesting and it was fairly well written so um yeah so I mean I'm glad I I got to read read the book did you have any um something else you wanted to say about that no not particular I mean one of the things that I like about the book is that it does address themes what in a, in a way that seems to me largely sympathetically yeah. Um, it, it, there's not a lot of condemnation for people yeah. in hard circumstances, so I do like that. I do yeah. like that it just reads well. Uh, you and yeah. I, and I think even your wife, 
and my wife and everybody that I've talked to has gone through that book really quickly. And that's not to say that it's it manages to be really good and entertaining reading without being vapid. Um, well, so you're right. You're I, I right. Think about that's it. one of the reasons why it makes people's list is because it's kind of the opposite of that book we were just talking about, which is the time of our singing, which is a book that took me probably 700 years to read. Yeah. Because well, and, every and what, sentence is like weighed down with so much. And what about your first point? I do always appreciate in a storyteller, whether it's a film or a, or a book, where all of the characters have... Uh, so there's not any cookie-cutter villains. I mean, people in this book... Other than maybe things, Sam. Well, even him, I don't think so. I think she gives him some... Sam is the, the husband of... Desiree, who he does abuse her and causes her to run away. That's why she runs back to her hometown. But even him, he, you know, there's a reason why she was attracted to him. He had some positive characteristics, but then, of course, he was an abuser, which is inexcusable. But, but the point is, he's not a cookie cutter villain. You know, he's not. Yeah, that's true. Like, so he, he, there's no one in the book that, I mean, people do things like that, like his, like his abuse of her that are not, we're not, called on to like well you know stroke our chin and think well there must be a re- excuse for that no i mean lying to each other doing things that uh are cruel or or people that don't tell each other the truth in families these are all things that the book does not excuse but it also doesn't portray these people as as therefore um there's no like cardboard saints and and cardboard villains that's what it that is an admirable thing about the, yeah, the storytelling. I, I I can always appreciate that, and I can also also appreciate, as I say, not just from a character development standpoint, but also from a prosaic standpoint that she can explore themes. There are, and don't get me wrong, there are some sentences with particular power and and passion in there. Yeah, but she, you never get the sense that she's trying right to write this book, and so that's another thing that I do appreciate about it. Uh. I mean, if if there's a drawback to me, to this book at all, it's and this is probably just more of a question of personal taste, kind of like your sense of the uh, of the plot or your sense of the narrative structure. It's just that the level, the number of kind of coincidences that it takes to execute everything that she wants to execute, particularly with early. Also being somebody who is a bounty hunter, but also somebody who already had a like feelings for Desiree way back and just happens to be the person that gets hired to track down Stella. And then the coincidence of uh, Jude running into Stella in the first place or seeing her in a world of, you know, nine million people, nine billion yeah. people. I, you know, there's a there's a couple of things that 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 strain my my level of being willing to suspend disbelief. Yeah, that doesn't uh, bother me so much because I mean a lot of that's, novels. That's all I was are, saying. If there's if there's any drawback at it at yeah. all to me, that that would be it. But it never yeah. forced me to be like, oh come on, that's ridiculous. I mean, they do. They even admit that in the book, you know, like because uh, Stella becomes she eventually goes to school and then becomes a math teacher, and then she's like, 
well, coincidences are really just a matter of your perspective. And, you know, she, she has like a little point where she talks about statistics and what are the odds of such and such happening. So, I mean, I think that's a little nod to what you're saying from the author. Like, look, I get it. There's a little bit of a coincidence here, but roll with it because that's necessary for the, for this uh, story to kind of throw it, you know, and, but you know, if every story that had a, a big fat coincidence in it, you know, we'd have to throw I'm out a lot, a lot of I'm not saying coincidences by themselves are uh, No, that's, a, that's literally what you said. You said no. that all coincidences make a book bad, and you... That's not ironic, it's just coincidental. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. The obligatory Futurama reference. Speaking of which, on the whole, I highly recommend this book. I think yeah. it's an enjoyable reading experience and that it's also something that that people can learn from yeah which is i don't dis i, I don't it, so yeah sorry to interrupt but i don't disrecommend it but it wasn't my favorite thing that we've we've uh, explored yet so far but yeah so it's the vanishing half by Britt bennett yeah, yeah so should we awesome. uh hear from a word from our sponsors then yeah i was just saying so i had a i just our, quoted from futurama so well our last sponsor um unfortunately dropped us again so we had to find a new one. Um, this is why we need all of you to go out and get more listeners because, you know, yeah, these sponsors tell are somebody. not happy. Listen, you got to tell somebody about our podcast. You know it's your favorite podcast. I mean, there's approximately 20 million podcasts out there and um, approximately 19,999,000 uh, are two white guys talking at each other. But um, very few of them are these two particular white guys. And that's a coincidence worth celebrating, I think. So um, here's a word from our sponsor, Lightspeed Briefs. Good morning, class. I trust you've all prepared for today's final exam. Uh, excuse me, I missed a few lectures. Uh, what subject is this? Ancient Egyptian Algebra. Oh, what a nightmare! Mr. Fry! Are those your underpants? <gasps> <laughs> Young man, I think it's time you learned a lesson about Lightspeed brand briefs. Lightspeed fits today's active lifestyle, whether you're on the job or having fun. Lightspeed briefs, style and comfort for the discriminating crotch. All right, thanks. Lightspeed briefs. Let's hope that... Uh sponsor sticks around for a little longer than well let's say one episode yeah so. i'm i'm hoping that uh, maybe they'll send us some samples um i had you this, can't i had the weirdest dreams but yeah you have a weird dream i had the weirdest oh. dream about about light speed briefs the other day and yeah so anyways what were you gonna say i was gonna say our listeners can't see this but both of us we only rep products that we we actually use so we are That's both right. wearing light speed briefs yeah right now absolutely so, um, um so, all right so uh our next book uh what did you pick for me so i picked the 1955 musical film uh the court jester which stars danny Kaye, glennis johns basil rathbone angela lansbury and cecil parker and it is what i think is a a delightful comedy from 1955 as i said so the basic story is kind of your um sort of um it's sort of like a riff on 
Robin Hood mythology. It's kind of set in a sort of fictional Merry England sort of uh, setting. There's a usurper to the throne and a a the the true heir, the true king is a baby who is um, humorously has a uh, birthmark of a purple pimpernel on his buttock which is is used to good comic effect um and danny k plays a kind of a hapless um uh, what would you call him like a circus entertainer type guy who yeah is, he's a he's a they call him a carnival performer yeah carnival performer he's trying to hook up with the robin hood like bandits in the forest who are protecting the 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 air um, and the black the, fox, the black fox. That's right. Um, and um, through a series of misadventures, he um, he gets insinuated into the usurper king's court as the court jester. And there's a lot of um, uh, well, impersonating mix. a jester that was on the way. That's a relevant. Yeah, he's impersonating detail. a jester that had been contracted by the evil Basil Rathbone who um, is scheming to um, take over himself. He's one of the king's advisors. And um, the real court jester, whom Danny Kaye's character is impersonating, um, was also a, a secretly a, an assassin who was going to come in and, and assassinate all kinds of people. Um, Angela Lansbury, who some people may have never seen her so young, is... Uh, <laughs> playing the the fair princess her i guess kind of um handmaiden or nurse her her, yeah like her maid is also like a witch and she's played by widow tulane yes exactly she's played by the lady who who plays the widow tulane in uh one of our favorite movies the quiet man it took me a while uh, to recognize her yeah she i was like i know i've seen her absolutely she's great she's just great in this movie so at any rate, um, you know, it's one of these kind of movies where in a sort of uh, like a Shakespearean farce, um, everyone gets um, mistaken for, for somebody else and they're impersonating various people and their um, identities are switching around. And and um, uh, I, I do think that despite what you said at the uh, intro, there are some connections to the um some a little bit of thematic connections that are just a little bit need i just to be said there would be out. less they, they <laughs> i said there would be less i'm pretty like, look, look we can rewind the like tape we can rewind the news. tape and and find out if you hey, said less or none that's we'll fine find you out. Edit, if that's true then you edit all of this i'm gonna edit part it out <laughs> i'm gonna edit gonna, it all right <laughs> i think there will be more connections then <laughs> so so, anyways, I that this is a movie that I recommended because Billy Rich and, I, <laughs> Rich and I grew up watching um, The Quiet Man. That was our mom's like favorite movie, so we watched it like probably at least once a year, you know, growing up. And uh, which, of course, is one of Danny Kaye's most famous roles or most in, endearing no, or enduring roles man. white white christmas oh i'm sorry i said i'm still thinking i was like yes. I, I was like no, no, no. favorite movie is the quiet no. man i thought that came from no no like no sorry Jimmy. sorry 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 i said the the sorry white christmas excuse me which is danny k's one of his most famous roles even today people that may not 
have seen a ton of classic Hollywood films may have seen Danny Kaye and his same kind of goofball persona, which is got, he has a particular way of, of carrying, uh, his, um, singing performances and his dancing performances, which are, are, are always very sharp, but they're done in a, in a kind of a, he, he play he always has a kind of a goofball persona and that really comes out to great effect in this film. He gets um, to flex his muscles a little bit more though. Well, this, that's the, that's in a part couple of, of the, different ways. So one of the, the plot threads is that, um, Angela Lansbury's, you know, witch, uh, <laughs> uh, maid, now you made me want to say nurse. She's not a nurse, Rich. Angela Lansbury's not a child, okay? She's a maid. <laughs> I don't know what <laughs> she is, though. Her, she's a, her, she's her lady in waiting. She's her lady in waiting. Let's say that. Yeah. But she's also like a witch. So she has like the ability to cast spells on people, which is convenient for a movie like this. Because when Danny Kay comes in, um, Angela Lansbury is, is basically um, boy crazy. And she wants to, to marry someone. Uh, anyone handsome that'll take her away from, you know, all this sort of thing. And, um, she starts threatening her, her lady in waiting saying like, if you don't make the arrangements, then I'm going to make sure that you, you know, off with your head sort of thing. So the lady in waiting basically waylays Danny Kay, the court jester, as soon as he comes in the castle and puts a spell on him so that he will be dashing, brave, and, you know, every form of chivalry and that he'll rush to the princess's um, side and woo her and then sweep her off her feet and all this sort of stuff. And of course, the um, the convenient plot device is that with the snap of a finger that, you know, he will go back to his normal bumbling, you know, comic self. And then, you know, with another snap of the finger, he goes right back into being the uh, dashing um, hero. So, it's it's um, that allows Danny Kay to not only show his kind of goofball chops, but also it has one of the funniest sword fights I think ever committed to film. Because towards the end, he is involved in a series of you know snapping in and out of this um, you know great swordsman ability to where when he's when he's, you know, got the swordsmanship, it's a pretty fun, you know, standard Hollywood stage fighting, sword fighting. It's pretty well done. He actually well did done. really, he actually did yeah. really well at that. I thought it was oh, really yeah. cool looking. I and thought then, it was really good looking. And then as soon as the fingers are snapped, he's back to goofball. He does the funniest stuff with his sword. Like his holding one, both like hands holding and both hands and just waving it back and forth as around. fast as possible. It's, yeah. it's really, really something to see. Like, you can describe it, but... It, you have to see it, but um, and of course there's there's a lot of silly wordplay and a lot of you know visual jokes and you know it's got the 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 flagging with the dragon and the the pet the um, you mean the the vessel with the pestle the vessel with the pestle it has the, is the brew that is true the flagging with the dragon is the pestle wait has the, the por- porter with the pestle the pestle the poison with poison the, uh, the, pro- the, pill, the poison with pill the that pill is poison or... yeah so there's this extended sequence where the you know there's a couple poison. the pellet is poison <laughs> there's two cups that one of them is poison and the other isn't but rather than you know that's kind of an old trope but rather than just that they put this extended riff on you know with this verbal play kind of like um who's on first type type thing and it's it's pretty funny um that's one of the f- most famous 
you know bits from this movie as well as the uh get it got it good you know that yeah that, keeps that was happening. i i don't know anyway so, so finish the plot think? synopsis then oh i thought i did well basically no. oh sorry well uh the black fox and they're trying to reinstate the the plot doesn't matter. It's just it's it's it funny. The plot, Ultimately, of course, the, they win and yeah, they oust the king or whatever. Yeah, the, and... the false usurper is is dethroned. But 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 the the baby. See, this is one of the things that I wanted to talk about. Is that I think was is funny. So the idea of like um, uh, swapping identities and even even gender roles. It, it it goes way back in theater and it way back in you know mythology. Um, to you know ancient ancient tales and you know of course it's very present in Shakespeare which is probably a more ready inspiration for this type of movie because of the setting but the thing that I think is is kind of I really like about this movie is that you know for all the movies that have a you know a knight or a you know a Robin Hood type figure that ultimately win the day by you know a great sword fight or what have you even like the princess bride which is of course another kind of semi-farce um in this one the reason that the the um the main love interest falls in love and i actually didn't mention her but it's glennis john she's a she's a woman who is the lieutenant or the the captain of the you know forest uh, Robin Hood people, the Black Fox's captain. So she's kind of already out playing against type because she's this beautiful woman, but she's the um, leader of the Merry Men or whatever. So she becomes a love interest. She's always for, a, always a progressive for, woman in all of her roles. Votes <laughs> votes for right? women. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, she's in Mary Poppins too, but she. Um, is the love interest for Danny Kaye's, you know, kind of bumbling character. But when she falls in love with him, she specifically says that she falls in love with him because he shows that not all men are just people that go around and, you know, cut people down with swords or whatever. She falls in love with him because he's somebody who can be tender and who can show care and can be, uh, can be a caring person. And he does that by taking, like literally taking care of a baby and from the start, he's hesitant to do to step into that role. Uh, he even says to the black fox, because because everyone has to pay homage to this baby king, uh, and the way they, they do it is they basically have to like kiss the baby's butt. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not really. They don't, but that's they don't kiss like it, the... but they pay homage to it because he keeps you know exposing the little uh, birthmark on the baby's rear end uh, t- for everyone as if it was a relic, you know that they would they would kneel and and pay homage to and so he's doing that and he's kind of like don't you think this would be a better role for a woman to do you know that sort of thing but he does it and he does it with care he's just he doesn't want to be put in a position where he cannot play some sort of heroic or some sort of have some contribution to the to the effort that the 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 rebellion or the um, the effort to reinstate the true king, so when she falls in love with him and she tells him, "Oh, I'm fa- I, I'm falling in love with you because not because you're this you know dashing um, swordsman, but because of your showing the care." And then at the very end of the movie, spoiler alert, he you know shows he does the same thing where he you know they bring the the baby king in to reinstate him. 
and everyone has to pay homage and, and kneel. And when he does that, he takes the baby from her and he he takes on that role more willingly at last. And you think maybe the way it's staged, it looks like it may be about to be where, you know, he hands the baby off to the woman to do that. Um, this is a woman's job to take care of babies, that sort of thing. But no, he takes that job willingly and he he kind of owns that aspect of his of his persona and of his uh, of who he really is. Um, and, I mean, and you know, the bumbling guy is who he really is, but he's also a guy who's caring, who's, you know, an artistic person, who's a creative person. And, and I just think that it's kind of fun that that's the, ultimately that that is the heroic aspect of the movie more so than the fact that there was, you know, that there was that the black Fox doesn't really do anything in the whole movie ultimately. I mean, he he basically sends some. He shows up at the stuff. end and like takes credit for yeah, but for all doing the, nothing. The really, only pe- yeah, it's he the little really people do- that did everything. Yeah, there's a whole troop of of little people, you know, that were you know carnival performers themselves that end up infiltrating the castle and and overthrowing the the usurper king's um, knights and everything and tossing them over the wall into the into the moat into or the something. Or in, uh, over the cliff or something, I guess. It's kind of like a cliffside castle. But at any rate, I just think that's a lot of fun. Um, well, what else did you th- did you think about in watching it? Yeah, it was fun. There were definitely moments where I, I laughed uh, a lot. I particularly thought that the writing was clever. And it, there were some ways in which I, I wish they had explored their capability as writers more. Uh, particularly because all of the different sort of plot twists in terms of the contrivances that were necessary to make these things happen were really, really good. Uh, oh, yeah. That was my absolutely. favorite element about it that, you know, I, I never saw the next thing coming that is particularly like, oh, we're, well, here's a court jester. It's like, of course, he's going to eventually be the court jester, but that that court jester is also an assassin. But then yes. that the princess has her... <laughs> Uh, agenda to manipulate the witch, which makes the witch have some other agenda. I can't ever really figure out what the witch's agenda is, other than to her just, agenda is to not get killed, to not, <laughs> not get to be, killed, basically, not to, for right? For the princess to not like off with her head. That's her but agenda. I I also appreciated in the sense that this you know has a little bit of the rom com kind of love triangle element to it. Not really, because Danny Kaye is never really interested in in uh, Gwendolyn, which I thought Angela Lansbury actually was really, really good at that. Oh, she's wonderful. At that at that character. But um, there's it, it has a little bit of that element, but I appreciated that it was never like, you know, that that, that never became the focal point of, of, you know, any of the mishaps in the sense that, like, she never sees them kissing or something, and then he has to go win her back. I, I liked that that didn't kind of happen, that it was just like the way that everything worked in, everybody's like, oh, yeah, he's playing his part really well, you know, even when he's under a spell. And then she happens to run into him and give him the key, but then he's also supposed to be like finding a winch, which is not a really great word, and they use it a bunch, yeah. but supposed well, to be because- finding a... It's because the usurper king is a is a pig, you know. He's yeah. like, oh, let's get some winches in here. You yeah, know? I, mean, I mean, it but is he's funny a, a little bit. A that he, they just like drove the cart around, and just like yeah. grabbed like, a truck. Winches, full of women more winches. Like, <laughs> grab a winch, you know. <laughs> and uh, 
Uh, it's but I like, really appreciated the It's like DoorDash for winches. In the <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, uh, we the king ordered 20, some winches. <laughs> we need 20 to go. Um, but I, I, I thought that the like plot intricacies, for the most part, were really clever. And then, as you say, some of the wordplay. Uh, yeah. If I had a beef with this film at all, it's that there were a few times when they took a gag a little bit too far. But before I even talk about this... I will say that I felt the film was, it reminded me more than anything, and I don't think I've seen a film from this era, but it reminded me almost of like Airplane in the sense that, I mean, it still had more of a, a, a comedy, you know, plot than Airplane a little bit. And, but some of the jokes were, it was just farcical in a way that I hadn't really seen. Maybe there's some earlier, you know, works that I, I'm not familiar with. I'm still, uh, you know, uh, learning the canon of film. But I guess by that, I just mean that there were some ridiculous... There was just a an element of ridiculousness that you would find in something like well, uh, I mean, there Airplane. Was a, in terms sure, I of, mean, you've got Marx Brothers. You've got... I mean, farce is not anything new. And, and something with a lot of... Um, I know. I guess pun, I'm not, I guess I'm not articulating play. it well. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, I, I appreciated well, that. Well, there's, I mean, I mean the, there's a little of that fourth wall breaking stuff. Like, I mean, even the, the opening credits, um, are, su are sung with this kind of, uh, Danny K sings a song as, I guess, as Danny K, but. Right. And he's, he's like dodging the credits. I actually like the opening credits was one of my favorite numbers in oh, the it's, whole it's thing. Great. Because yeah. he's like, and then this is what's going to happen. And you'll see that these are the, you know, plot yeah. devices that we use. <laughs> and the whole and introduction he, is. And he sings about all the different, you know, all the different characters and, and stuff. And Basil Rathbone's credit keeps sneaking on. And he pushes it aside over and over again. <laughs> Who Basil Rathbone is also always great. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I, always think, I always think of of MST3K because they did that that gag on. He was in some bad movie that they riffed on, and there was one of those things in the middle where they came back, and I think it was a Joel episode, and they had they had basil rathbones, and it was like a a dog treat. It was like milk bones, but it was basil <laughs> yeah. rathbones, and they gave it to the <laughs> to the robots yeah. dressed up as dogs. I named us when I my very first uh, bartending job i made up a shot and called it a basil rathbones <laughs> and that was the I, that was probably one of the reasons why i got fired because i gave them away for free a lot but <laughs> yeah yeah that's i don't not know why they... if you those of you if you are in the service industry like don't give away just everything for free yeah. they frown upon that seems like it anyway um yeah no i really enjoyed it for the most part it was funny i i will say it's not something that i'll likely like go back to again anytime soon um there were as i say some of the physical comedy which was really good at times like the part where he was swinging back and forth between like like on that giant rope like swinging down to gwendolyn's room and then swinging back oh, up yeah. to meet yeah uh, basil rathbone uh, <laughs> and he just always lands was. exactly and he just like the window <laughs> his, his like i know and he's like just there and he's like I don't know. That part was really funny to me. That's and there great, were some yeah. some some moments that were really funny from a physical comedy standpoint. Um, I I did not as much appreciate like the scene where he was supposed to be knighted. I thought could have been really funny, oh. 
but it goes on for like ten you minutes. The, you mean the I, part I, I, where he's the actually gag? getting knighted? Or yes, where, yes, yes. Where Not doing the, the trials. The, the trials were funny. Yeah. Um, but then they're like actually yeah, knighting him, and the I gag that you, first happens is part. like. They go double time, and I started yeah. laughing when they like immediately all the knights start running really fast. Yeah, but then literally it's just him dodging them, walking yeah. around for ten minutes. Not, it's probably not really ten it's, minutes, no, but it's not. That but tells, I'm right. sure it's two to three minutes. I agree. That went that's, on a little long. That's the weakest, the weakest little bit in it. But to um, me, here's the thing about this movie: if you watch it with kids. It, it it's it's great like it kills with kids it's it's really good um well at the end danny k also kind of kills with kids because they're <laughs> like he's taking all the little people and no there were elements of that that i thought like where he like gets a guy on a rope and is like swinging the one guy around <laughs> on a rope for like two minutes and that somehow like takes care of the whole army i mean yeah i would have thought that was funny seeing it once but then it's just a couple of times they did something for the, like the fifth time that i was like the fourth time was probably fine like yeah. even with the flag and with the dragon thing would have been a little better if they had just just trimmed it just a tiny bit um i did think it was funny once they first i mean i just mean the initial time they introduced that to him they they say it like three or four too many times or something because they say it like 15 times initially because it would have been funnier because once you know somebody overhears them talking about it and goes and tells the other guy who he's supposed to be fighting we didn't really talk about this but he's supposed to be fighting he ends up like inadvertently being like roped into this fight to the death for Gwendolyn, who he doesn't even really want to win her hand anyway but this other guy does and so they're going to fight to the death. And that's where the whole like poison pill comes in. And then at last minute, they're like, oh, no, that that cup broke. There's a different cup. Now you have to remember a different rhyme. But, you know, somebody overhears that and tells his competitor. So when they're both like walking towards each other, like trying to remember the rhyme yeah. at the same time. But then that, but then that his suit is but his suit, his has suit been is magnetized, magnetized because it got. Struck with lightning, so they keep bumping Which into each other. Which is how he ultimately wins, funny. manages to win at all, because he's, yeah. like, magnetized. Yeah. But, no, there were but, definitely... Uh, and Danny Kaye's faces, always Danny Kaye's faces in everything that he does. He is a master of the facial expression, and so... I, I appreciated that he got to do more than just be kind of one static character. That he did yeah. get to play like the masterful swordsman and the goofburger right. and the guy, the goofburger impersonating another guy. And yeah, so I, you know, and the, the, and I think it was you know because remember he's um, he's the court jester is supposed to the incomparable Giacomo is the name of the court jester. He's supposed to be an assassin in disguise, uh, and that's what Basil Rathbone, the villains, thinks he is. So this kind of running joke that when people start getting, you know, assassinated and he gets credit for it, even though he doesn't even know that it's happening. Well, is, everything is pretty that funny. happens, he gets credit for, even yeah, though he doesn't do it. And, and it looks like Rappel's he's a like, master. Yeah. Wow. He's even better than I thought. You know, right. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's and they good. ultimately find, think that he is. They're like they kind of discover that he's not the incomparable Giacomo. 
Right. And so then they naturally deduce that oh, the only other masterful person who he could be is the black <laughs> yeah. fox himself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is funny too because at the beginning of the movie, you know, not counting the credits, the first time you see Danny Kay, he's, he's actually fooling he's, you he's into acting, thinking, making you think he's the black fox. Right. But what it turns out is he's actually singing a song about being the black fox. And then the black fox comes on. He's like, what are you doing wearing my clothes? <laughs> I my clothes. I, that whole bit I told where, you to not wear my clothes. Where he starts like, he, well, he's standing there and then he's oh, like, yeah. well, there's two of me. And then there's three yeah. of me. And then they yeah, turned into the great. little people and stuff. That That's a great That number. was a really cool number. Yeah. And I really liked the number where he first has to go out there at the actual like festivities or whatever. And the number that he sings about becoming a jester, I thought oh, yeah, was that's really, great, really good. Oh, really and good. the and the poetry. I love that good. one. I love so that I, one. There were just times to me where the physical comedy was a little distracting from what I thought was the strength of the writers, which was their wordplay and their, you know, kind of right. plot machinations. That and even their songs. They they probably this is not something I'll always say, but they probably could have had another number in there somewhere. No, uh, they had to do that thing with the with the knighting ceremony. Sorry, no, no that thing was that number. thing was the worst. <laughs> I'm sorry, and even a little bit like toward the end of the sword fight. Like at first, the sword fight was good, but then there's that like that one final time where Danny Kay like drops his sword, and then he's just running around <laughs> making his noises like whoa, and all the noises that he makes. Oh man, that it's still good. Come on, it's look, the knight ceremony was the thing that I was like, yeah. okay, let's let's wrap it up. I w- no, I did want to ask you a question, though, about... Okay. Because Sarah actually asked me, my officer asked me this question, about the costuming. Mm-hmm. And, like, the sort of... It's not really medieval, because it kind mm-hmm. of is, but it's also, like, there's almost, like, this sci-fi-y kind of element to all the, yeah. like, pastel colors and stuff to it. But what here's do you think? the thing. But here's the thing. I actually did want to talk about this, too. So, one of the things I think that... That's one of the things I like about this movie... No, I'm not complaining about it. I'm no, no, asking. No, I know. I'm asking. Well, I like how colorful it is, and I'm not a medievalist, but I do know that in the last, let's say, 20 to 25 years, let's say since, at least since, maybe before, but at least since, let's say, that Kevin Costner Robin Hood movie, okay, so in the 90s, you know, there's been an increasing trend of every movie that's set in the Middle Ages, or at least in a kind of you know, mythical version of the Middle Ages, like this Robin Hood type of story. Yeah, it's all, you know, everything is like, yeah, everyone, it's like nobody had discovered color back then, you know, like everyone must have worn, you know, various shades of mud colored, (laughs) you know, it's all gray, whether they're, whether there's always mist coming out of the walls. Everything looks, everything is like, it's literally like the scene in Monty Python where people are rolling around in the muck, you know? (laughs) It's like, that's what they, but that's what everything looks like in these, in these TV and movies. And I think that that's so silly because if you look at medieval tapestries or, or paintings or whatever, I mean, people are wearing wild colors, you know, they're wearing bright reds, they're wearing blues, they're wearing, so, I mean, I'm not saying that this movie is is like his is his. Yeah, they did a lot of research about this. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, but the truth is, it's there's something to be said for a stylized, uh, colorful version of a medieval era as opposed to the um, drab kind of 
you know, everyone's rolling around in the in the gray mud all the time. Yeah. Uh, look, this so, movie would have been a lot less enjoyable if, and I think of like another option they could have made is like decolorize, you know, the king and Basil Rathbone and the other advisors and like. The only person that's really not colorful at all is the witch. She just like walks around wearing black, but everybody else is like in a different bright color. I just yeah. liked that about it. No, it's good. You never got confused that the movie was going to take itself more seriously than it sure. should in a way. But but even if it was a serious drama, the idea that everyone should look, you know, completely drab and desaturated is is No, ridiculous. I hear you. I hear and, you. I understand. And, I'm just also but, saying that it added to the comedic effect or yeah. the joyous effect of the film. I think it, it does, you know, make it part and parcel of, of more of your tradition of musical comedy more so than any kind of the fact that it happens to be set in this, you know, castle and medieval, fake medieval times or whatever. So, yeah. but yeah. So I also, but ultimately I did like... I got this is stupid, but I got a little bit irritated. Not irritated. I'm sorry. I feel like if you were gonna shave off two minutes from the knights dancing, step in time scene, you could have maybe put a tiny bit more plot wrap up right at the very end, so that it didn't just like at the end he like shows the baby's bottom to everybody, and then even the false king, who murdered everybody, like they. They just kind of gloss over the fact that he like murdered that baby's whole family, and he's That's just kind of like he's just kind of like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'm not king anymore. And but then he, he didn't... sings he, he sings the outro with them, so ah, I just you know I didn't want him to look, be killed necessarily. But look, all the soldiers, got... <laughs> all the soldiers, they got thrown over the side of the. You know, castle, but he's just like, well, I guess that's the end of the road for me. And ba- but didn't ba- did Basil Rathbones even got thrown over? Yeah, him. He, he was did. like in a way trying a dumb, to kill or a the dummy usurper. representing him. So I I don't know. I that was silly it's, to me. And then it doesn't bother it, to wrap up. Like I want, I really wanted Gwendolyn to like. S- I I just wanted her to like see the knight that was trying to win her and be like, oh, this is the guy I wanted all along, and them to run off together. It would have taken nothing to like do that, and that could no, have been charming. I, there were just but she, uh, it's fine. I I think sometimes when no, they it's, try there's to nothing do all wrong that with stuff. it. I told you, it's like I know it doesn't look, matter. There's look, no just moral admit you're to wrong. this story. Just admit you're wrong. I will never do that, sir. I will die on this hill of this movie that I've seen once that no one else has seen. Uh, no, you. I'm sure a lot of people have seen it. Yeah. So um, no. It all, was, on the whole, though, it's an it's a really enjoyable movie. It's definitely not something that I've I'm like irritated about or something. But I I had a good time watching it, and that's the whole point of this movie is to so that you have a good time. Right? Yeah. And um, also, you know, so, the, uh, the movies of this era. You know, if they're lighthearted or, or the, you know, once they're done, boom, they're done. The end. You don't have, you know. I mean, cre- that you already got through the credits. Sudden. You get you get through the credits at the beginning. Right. You know, then this you just is get to the end. And then at the end, boom, you're done. I mean, that's, that. those were the days, man, with when they made yeah. movies well, I like mean, that. White Christmas does that too, right? It's yeah. like. Well, yeah, sure. It Every doesn't wrap up the, all the plot lines until the last 30 seconds. And then it's like, oh, it snowed. Oh, the general's here. Oh, they're all in love. And then it's like there's always the like glorious pan out, and then the that's fade great. to black. I mean, what? Yeah, what that's I mean, definitely what more how do you really want ends. from a from a Hollywood musical. <laughs> so no, nothing really in 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 1955. So 
So anyway, should we, lots of should, fun. So should we tell everyone uh, what we're uh, what we're going to take a look at next month? Yeah, go for it. Give us a, tell everybody what we're about. Okay, so next month is May, and we're going to have Magical May. And hopefully, uh, we'll have Magical May in May, and not. I think we <laughs> will. Early June. I think we will. I you know I think we will. So I've I've selected a a a movie for Rich to watch uh, by the the great Swedish director Ingmar Bergman called The Magician, and he selected for me uh, a, a fantasy book called Uprooted from a few years ago by Naomi Novik. Uh, just really a great, fun, standalone fantasy novel. Uh, so we'll and celebrate the, the magic of May. Absolutely. And Ingmar Bergman, as everyone knows, is is a, is always a barrel of laughs. So you'll you'll be enjoying that uh, probably yeah. about the same way that you enjoyed uh, Danny Kaye's Misadventures this month. So oh yeah, I'm sure they're on par. Well, I for the first time, this is a time where I've picked something that's a little more on the fun side. Everything yeah. I've picked so far has been pretty gloomy. Yeah, thanks a <laughs> Dead lot. Dead babies for that. and the world is coming to an end. And yeah. so Man, I need, I'm I need trying to balance to... out the score a little bit. No I don't kidding. read very much fun stuff. I read everything I read is like uh, yeah. you know, pretty well pretty gloomy. So everyone has anyway. always said that I'm the fun brother. That's always been Oh yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah. There's not, how many people actually know both of us at this point in uh, our lives? Probably several Six? more than wish was the case. <laughs> that's true. But, that's, that's true. So, anyways, thanks again for listening, and be sure to give us a shout out on social media. We're at See Here Brother on Twitter, and you can send us an email. Um, be the first person. You could be the very first person to send us an email. Yeah, uh, um, there's a pair here. of Lightspeed briefs in it for you for the that's tenth, right. That's for right. our tenth it, emailer. Yeah, we'll we'll beam them right into your dreams. So see here, brother at gmail.com. And um, so thanks a lot for listening. Uh, for see here, brother. I'm Josh Wilson. Yep, I'm Rich Wilson. Thank you so much. We'll see you next month. Have a nice life. And if shadows fall, even though it hurts you, laugh through it all. Be a cheerful loser, you have the world to gain. If you want the rainbow, 